You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. So just I want to do a quick straw poll. Michael's already done one during the, the worship time, but a quick straw, straw poll. Who had a moment of stress this week? Okay, good. See, I, I see that hand, see that hand. See, I can get hands, mate. It's all good. Um, it's good. I just, I, I was wanting to confirm uh, where we were coming from in last week's message that hardship and trials are indiscriminately inevitable. And I'm glad to see that that's been confirmed by all of you, that there is something that we're all having to wrestle through. That is uh, dynamics and the stresses of life. And what that means is we need resilience. And the reason we are needing resilience is because we're learning to, there's a difference between, say, endurance, where endurance is just uh, the inner resolve and the grit to just suck it up and push through. And the big challenge that we have in that is how do we become a people uh, who don't become hardened and brittle by the hardships of life through that dynamic called endurance. And so we said we need resilience because resilience is this. Resilience is not a tough resolve or a tough grit. Resilience is simply the ability to bounce back, to come back to the center, to come back to a healthy center when the stresses of life have pushed against you. A tire is incredibly resilient. How many bumps and potholes and clunks does it roll over in any given journey you're never going to think about your tires the same when you drive home this morning but they are the most resilient part of your car because they're able to bounce back to the shape that they always are now last week so we learned that there was um in the trials and the hardships there was good news and bad news the bad news was trials are indiscriminately inevitable inevitable and the good news was that trials are indiscriminately inevitable That is because we're learning that uh, the great mystery of the resource of Christianity is that there is a dynamic possible, there's a dynamic available to you this morning, whereby the trials and the hardships in your life don't make you bitter, that the trials and the hardships in your life uh, don't crush you, they are able to transform you. So, if we learnt that that's the good news, the good news is this, that resilience is not a trait or a talent. Resilience can be learned. It's not something that is innate. It's not something that's just gifted to people that somehow know how to bounce back. Uh, What we see, particularly through psychology and a whole range of different writing, that people can bounce back. And this reading from 2 Corinthians shows one of the most resilient guys in the Bible, uh, the Apostle Paul. You'd almost be forgiven to think that he had something wrong with him in his head with the way that he just managed to go through the trials and the challenges that he did in life. Uh, But when we ask the question, how can we learn resilience? As I've been doing all of my various readings throughout the past couple of weeks around resilience, I started to realize that in this one passage, there are a whole range of fundamental principles that Paul applies that you could layer over the top of just about every blog, every book, every piece of writing, every little tip that you could have in terms of what it means to be a resilient person, right? That there seems to be a grid here that Paul seems to, and I've done the hard work for you, uh, (laughs) he seems to encapsulate the principles underlying so many of these great tips that you can go and read about this week. So uh, I see four of them. 
And uh, this is very uncharacteristically uncharacteristic of me this morning because you know what I'm like. I like I'm I'm big picture. I'm above the line. Uh, I'm I'm the sort of guy that likes to think the big stuff and the emotional stuff. This morning's very practical. Just four four things straight up. Very practical to the point. Four things we can learn the principle from Paul. It has to do with horizons, abilities, achievement, community. Horizon, ability, achievement, community. Uh, Verse 17 first. Here's the first thing we see from Paul here, the principle. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Verse 18, the key one. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's the first thing, principle that Paul has. The first resource available to you to build resilience, and it is this. Establish a horizon of hope. You can write on the back of the welcome cards if you want. This is good stuff. Um, I don't go sailing that much. Uh, I don't have the opportunity to that much. But uh, I, have, I went sailing with a mate once. And it's not the sort of sailing that I like doing because he went outside of the heads. And we, we, he decided to anchor outside of Palm Beach, outside the heads in a three and a half metre swell. And for the untrained sailor, uh, that was disastrous uh, because uh, within about three minutes, uh, already I could feel my lunch starting to come back up into my throat. And uh, part of uh, the, the real reason was, as I was being thrown around in these three and a half metre swells, is no horizon. Have you ever noticed when you're sailing that one of the ways that you can get over that sea sickness is if you can establish a horizon, you can see the horizon there. So Paul says, when you fix your eyes on what is seen, but uh, not what is on seen, but unseen, he's saying establish a horizon. Now, the problem that we uncovered last week in secular society, a saculum, a, a 90-year society, the, that's a saculum is a Latin word for a 90-year period, we realize that the problem that we have in our secular society is that it's a horizonless life. Secular society says, now's it. That the waves are it, that the things that are happening around you are it. And so that leads to a form of, I'm calling it soul sickness. Uh, where you're getting thrown about around by the waves of life that are hitting you. And it leads to a sense of soul sickness. And, and here's how it can manifest itself. Because on one hand, it's, it really does sound quite positive. Uh, Martin Seligman, I mentioned him last week. He's like the father of modern day positive thinking. He said... One of, in his article, he says one of the key characteristics of resilience is that optimism is key. He says this. He suggested how we might immunise people against learned helplessness, against depression and anxiety and against giving up after failure is you teach them to think like optimists. Now, look, for a second, I'm not denying the significance of positive thinking. Um, I'd much rather be positive thinking than not. But, but there's a deep problem with only this approach. And can you see it? Look, here's the question. How can you have optimism when you see the world for what it really is? <laughs> like the other side of the spectrum, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he was an American Supreme Court justice. He says this, I think that the sacredness of human life is a purely constructed idea of no validity outside of the jurisdiction where it was constructed. Doesn't this squashy sentimentality about human dignity make you want to puke? 
That includes people who talk about uplift and the nobility of the human spirit as if the universe is no longer predatory. Oh, bring in the basin. On one hand, he's, he's looking at the world far more realistically than Seligman if there is a horizonless world. But can you see now how the Christian resource differs? If Paul says, fix your eyes on not what is seen, but what is unseen, but eternal, then suddenly Christian optimism is not grounded in thinking or a program that you go through at Harvard somewhere, but it's fundamentally grounded in hope. The hope that there, there is a God and he busted his way through the side of the world and he lived in Jesus Christ and he died and he was resurrected and people saw it and that message has been spreading out and that's why we're here this morning. There's a grounded hope for the Christian in their thinking and here's how it helps you practically then. A little bit more than positive thinking in your resilience is it, it means that an immediate and a vibrant sense of the big picture means that you can deal with the short-term stings or even the medium-term frustrations. Two people are sent to a task. They're going to make widgets 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next 10 years in a grey room with a flickering fluoro light and a chair. One of them says, at the end of the 10 years, you're going to receive a million dollars. To the other person, when they go to their room, you're going to, you're going to receive one dollar. Question class, who whistles while they work? The resilience of Christians is this. Our resilience is profoundly affected by our believed in futures. And so we don't have a horizonless life. And so the question for you then is, how's your widget making going? Are you getting stung by the waves? Is there a soul sickness emerging for you in the way that life is starting to throw you around? Is it because, church, you haven't established a horizon of hope? Or maybe, you haven't, maybe you've just lost sight of the horizon of hope. Doesn't that happen all the time when life gets the better of us? But without an eternal horizon of hope, here's what happens. There'll always be a ground note of anxiety in your life. That if you put your ultimate hope into anything in this life, into your job, your money, your family, your health, your status, then all that trial and hardship can do is come and rip that away. And you get nervous. There's anxiety. So how does Christianity help? First one, when you establish a horizon of hope, it makes these things, although they're good things, career, family, it makes them penultimate. It makes them second priority in your life. It, it, make, it makes them not the ultimate destination for you and it gives you an ability to be resilient. So, first one, establish a horizon of hope. Here's the second one. Uh, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have treasures in jars of clay. Here's the second principle, and it's all throughout all the psychology writings. Go and grab some blogs, put it into this framework. I bet it's going to work for you. Here's the second one. Make a realistic assessment about your capabilities. We have treasures, but in what? In jars of clay. Have you, anyone ever seen these X Factor shows that are on television and the horrid auditions that go on in them? I loved one of the girls where she decided to sing the Mariah Carey song, Ken Lee. 
And she sang, you know, Ken Lee, Deliba Dibidachu. And the judges just laughed at her the entire time because uh, she sang the whole song and didn't utter one word of English. It was the Polish uh, American, or the Polish idol or whatever they were singing. But, but here, here's the point. It's not about Ken Lee. It was, I, I'm thinking, where was her mum and dad before she went to that audition? <laughs> where was a brother? Where was a sister? Where was a sibling? Where was a friend that just... Just got their arm around them and said, "Han, like, I don't think singing is your gig. <laughs> In fact, I don't think English is your gig. <laughs> where, where, where were those people? And I don't know, is it just me, but are, are, we, are we now in the generation of over-encouragement? Oh, you... You're a wonderful son. You can, you can do anything. You can be anything. Uh, I, used to think, I used to think I could play uh, pro basketball until I reached a period of about five foot, eight inches and realised that that was probably not going to happen. As much as I prayed, and I can do immeasurably more, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. You know, like there's sort of a, there's an element in which you have to Make some realistic assessments about your abilities. And so here's the thing. Attempts to over-encourage can actually inflate people's sense of capacity. And as a result, have you ever caught yourself out in the hardships of life when they come along and, and you've overestimated your own capabilities? That there's been times in which you've consistently persisted at something. You're starting to get down on yourself about something. And fundamentally, it's not so much the trial itself, but the overestimation that's causing the pain for you in life. So you look at Paul's sober sense of judgment here, what he's saying in jars of clay. He's saying, my leadership abilities, which God used, by the way, He's saying, unless God had done something in my life that had really hurt me and made me hurt, I would have become elated and puffed up. I would have thought that, that I had done all of these things. And it's only because Paul had constantly been humbled that he's able to say that this all-surpassing power is not from Paul and not from us, but from God. So you make a sober judgment of yourself. So the Christian view of self is quite humbling where jars of clay what it means for you is this you don't get surprised when you stuff up you don't get down on yourself when you stuff up you don't get down on yourself when you're in a moment of weakness you don't get down on yourself when you're in a down season because you see the fragility that we all are we're jars of clay of course we hurt of course we cry of course we feel depressed of course we're feeling down. of course with what we're going through we're jars of clay. But on the other hand, it's far more powerful than you think. Because what does he say? Does he say, oh, we're just jars of clay? We're fragile? No, he says we are treasures in jars of clay. In other words, the very lifeblood of God, the very power of God resides within you. That, that, that it's, you, you are like an acorn you, 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 are, you are like a seed. You, an entire tree could grow out of you. There is endless, infinite possibility of the fruit of your life that could emerge from these dark moments. But only until you have these times of hardship that come into your life can the seed fall to ground and the life come back up again. Have we heard that principle somewhere from some wise guy called Jesus? So 
Uh, on one hand, one of the challenges we face is that we, are over we can overinflate ourselves and that can be the very thing that's stinging us and we don't bounce back because we're too down on ourselves. But on the other hand, there's this mistaken belief that for most, uh, one of the biggest things that cuts off resilience, one of the biggest things that hampers resilience in people is this mistaken belief that you don't have the capacity to be resilient. God says you have this all-surpassing power from God within you. And so that, that power is available to you. And so can you see how wonderfully nuanced Paul's version of self-esteem is? Like he's not over-encouraging. He's not Ken Leeing. He is getting his arm around you and saying, hang on, your jars of clay, just be careful about what you go into here. But on the other hand, he's saying you have limitless potential within you in the power of God. Uh, what does all that do for us? How does it make us resilient? Here's what I think it does for us. It quietens the inner voice of self-rebuke. You know what it is, right? You, you, know, you know that little voice within you that says, oh, you're not good enough. You're not working hard enough. You haven't been a good enough father. You haven't been a good enough mother. If you had have been, then your kids wouldn't have been doing this. You haven't worked hard enough. The reason your competitors are getting in and around you is because you haven't pushed hard enough. You haven't been strategic. What is that? It's the inner voice of self-rebuke. And when you understand that on one hand you're fragile jars of clay, but on the other hand you are God's treasured possession, <laughs> that, that his very lifeblood resides within you, then you have no basis to talk to yourself like that. And of course, now then begins the opportunity to pick yourself up and to begin to move forward again and to choose a resilience and to be able to move back. You are jars, treasures in jars of clay. I'm fragile, but with the infinite power of God. Uh, then we've got the next one, the third one here. Verse 16, therefore, um, I like the way we get a little bit more positive now because on one hand, we could feel a little bit down on ourselves. But therefore, says Paul, do not lose heart, he says. Though out, outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Don't some of you know that dynamic? Out, outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Four, and here it is. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far weight outweighs them all. Here's the third one. Um, not only have you got to get a horizon, not only have you got to get a real sense of who you are, jars of clay, but you need to sense what you're achieving in your trials and your hardships. Did you hear that? What does he say? Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. What's being achieved? Here's what's being achieved. Glory. Glory. What do you mean by that? That's one of those big Christian church words. Um, you're a velveteen rabbit, remember? from last week I concluded with it allow me to expound it a bit the discussion between the skin horse and the rabbit real isn't how you're made said the skin horse it's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long long time not just to play with but really loves you then you become real does it hurt asked the rabbit sometimes when you're real you don't mind being hurt that's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. 
But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except the people who don't understand. Now, some people say this is fairy tale stuff, but this is far more practical than you dare believe. Here's a question. Can, can you think of people in your life who you know, partly through good luck and partly through a sheltered life, have almost had no storms in their life, no hardship, no trials? Question, what are they like? Probably they're shallow. They drift. They don't really know who they are. When There's no help when trouble comes. And certainly they struggle to be compassionate in a real way and empathetic. And when problems come, they can't even stand on their own two feet. Why? Glory. There's no weight about them. There's no significance about them. That's what glory means. They have a weightiness and a significance. You see, without hardships in your life, you're not a person with substance or depth or weight or glory. There's a weightiness and a significance to them. Why? Because the hardships have turned you real. Not only that, the hardships finally, have you ever found with these people that they're useful? You become useful to people because there are conversations that only you can have. There are beds that only you can sit beside you become real and you become useful. You see, the flip side of it all too is that hardships can ruin your life because it can make you bitter if you don't receive it rightly. You hear that? If you don't receive the hardships rightly with this sense of what it's achieving, then it can make you bitter. How do you receive it rightly? <laughs> I think it's put this way. A Christian, when they receive hardship, they don't say, well, there's two ways that say, why is this happening to me? Um, the average person says, why is this happening to me? The Christian says, why is this happening to me? Hear the difference? The average person says, why is this happening to me? That's back to last week. They're unhappy about being unhappy. They're surprised. They thought that suffering wasn't supposed to happen to them in their life. Oh, why is this happening to me? Christians, knowing that suffering is indiscriminately inevitable, they say, why is this happening to me? And what that means is you take the opportunity to say, Lord, what are you doing? What are you teaching me? What are you doing within me? What are you achieving within me in all of this? See the difference? Velveteen rabbits, you're becoming more real. The hardship is achieving something, a gloriness within you, a weightiness and a significance there's something about you that will make you useful at least to others. Now, this comes with a warning because just saying, oh, look, this is God's will. You know what that is? That's a pat answer. I can't stand churches with pat answers. <laughs> um, that's a, oh, it's just God's will. Um, or, or why is this happening? Oh, because you don't have enough faith. Isn't that one of the most ridiculous statements that we've seen flow through the Christian churches? Oh, maybe some of you painfully I know have come from churches where you're going through trials and hardships and oh it's because you don't have enough faith you just need to believe you just need to name it and claim it look you can't let suffering ruin your life and fill you with bitterness and self-pity which will actually make you less wise and will make you less understanding of people um, but you, you've got to make it, make it make you better and how do you become like that here's the final point it's and I really I picked up on this as I was circling through. Look at this. Verse 7, but we. Verse 8, we. 
Verse 11, we. Verse 16, we. Verse 16 again, we. Verse 18, so we fix our eyes. Paul's principle is you, you do this communally. You do this communally. I think this is the secret source of resilience. Paul did this in community. Why is that significant? Because how often do we think that resilience is the tough and the grit? And I've just got to get in and I've just got to work harder. I've just got to try harder. But, but communities of hope, that's, what, that's who we are. That's what we are. All of these communities, are, they're actually places that have resilience written into our very being. You've got to do it communally. And it breaks my heart because how many times have I seen as a pastor already in my limited eight to ten years of doing ministry? But I'm sure you guys are seeing this too. How many times have you seen people, when they go through trials and hardships in their life, exit community? You think of the people that you've lost out of a home group, out of service, that the minute trials come because... Because they, they think it's something that they just need to do by themselves. But there was a great quote I heard once. It says, a problem shared is a problem halved. And I totally understand the feeling that God is absent in the midst of hardship. But what are your alternatives? At, at least if you cannot sense or see or feel the presence of God in your life when you were going through hardships, then the key to resilience is seeing the presence and the emergence of God's presence in other people's lives. When you feel that God is gone, at least you can see him working in someone else's. And you know what? This, this has been totally mucking with my head leadership-wise here. And I tell you how it's totally thrown my paradigm of how we do leadership in this church. Uh, because for me, here's how it would go. Someone was in connection group leadership. Um, things happen all the time. It's inevitable. We're a broken people. Our whole leadership is broken, which is great because that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. So we know that all of this power is not from us, but from God here at Northside Church. I thank you that we're treasures in jars of clay. Um, but it's inevitable. We're going to have leaders. It's, and this is going to be some of you in our church are going to have significant hardships enter into your life. You're already going through them now. Now, the worst disservice that I've done to this church so far as a pastor is this. That whenever there was hardship and trials in a connect group leader's life, I'd say, you know what, why don't we pull you back from leadership for a little bit? Now, I know we have to couch this very carefully because we're not, we're not here about burning people out and we're not here about driving people into the ground. But hear me out for a second. Here's what I mean why it was the greatest disservice. Because the question I realise is if we do that the minute that anything hard comes to someone's life, then the question is how could we ever possibly build resilience in our leadership here. If we just extracted everyone, at the minute that you were hard-pressed from every side, we just extracted someone from leadership, how do you ever learn leadership? And so it was that one morning when I sat with one of our leaders when she was going through a deep challenge in her life, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to pull you out. I'll walk with you. I'll journey with you. I'll pray for you. I'll put my arm around you. We'll do what we can to get you through this, but I'm praying that God will uh, grow you and show you what it means to lead through darkness. And sure enough, she came out the other side and she came out stronger because something was being achieved in this communally. It was reflected three weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks ago by another connection group leader who was going through a deep challenge in his life. 
deep, deep sort of stuff that warranted him being withdrawn from that. And I said that again because I felt it was one of these moments that he needed to back out just for a second. And you know what his response to me was? No way. No way. If I back out of leadership now, then how in the world will my connection group witness God's glory in all of this? And I went, man, thank you. Lord. That was a rebuke, by the way. I was like, wow, okay. You do this communally. So what it means for you practically, certainly if you're, if you're in leadership, then it puts us all on notice. Are we going to, the, the leadership of our church, will we be a resilient leadership? And church is so easy to back out of when the hardships of life come. How many times have we thought many a person in this place, oh, you know what, too hard to serve now because I've just got a heap of stuff going. Too hard to serve in church, so I've just got a heap of stuff happening in my life. So why don't I just withdraw from community for a little while, um, do my little trials and hardships over there, and look, don't call us, Sam, we'll call you. Uh, what it means is uh, my hope and prayer is that we will build a resilient leadership and church in this place. But what it also means for you practically is how many people do you let see the dark moments of your life? Particularly in the low and offshore, let's be real. We don't like to share all that much. And we dress well with snazzy jackets, don't we? Ah, <laughs> oh, we've got it all together. No, we don't. The greatest challenge for the ministry of our church will be how we do trials and hardships and build resilience in community. And so I want that to sit there with you. Is there an openness? Is there a vulnerability? Is there a commitment? to community in all of this. Uh, they're the four. Establish a horizon. Maybe you need to establish one. Maybe, maybe you just need to refine the horizon, maybe feeling a bit soul sick. If you are this morning, you've just got to reestablish the horizon. You've, you're sitting in the middle of a boat and it's rocking everywhere. Make a realis realistic assessment of your abilities. Sense what God is doing in you. Don't ask, why is this happening to me, but why is this happening to me? And then most of all, are you doing this communally? Is this just one other person in this place that you are linked to, that you are sharing with? And that way people can see the glory in all of it all. Look, my last tip in all of this as we finish, and you probably know where I'm going to go with this, because I figure there's no point turning on the lights if we don't talk about Jesus. And we haven't talked about him yet. And I always say with these biblical characters, look, please, please don't ever use them as an example. They are a terrible example. Paul is a terrible example. He's great principles, but he's a terrible example. He'll crush you. I don't think I'll ever live as dynamic and wonderfully as Paul. I hope I might, but I, I doubt I will. Don't use him as an example, and that's because um, uh, he wasn't trying to be an example. He's trying to point you to his ultimate example. And you know what? There was someone who was hard-pressed on every side, and you know what? He actually was crushed. And there was someone who was perplexed and you know what, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unlike Paul, he was in despair. And there was someone who was persecuted and he was abandoned. And there was someone who was struck down and in many ways he was destroyed until God resurrected him. <laughs> um, don't look to Paul's example because it's almost, Paul was a little bit just, there was that baseline of it sounded too good and too positive to be true, Paul. There is one that went even deeper than Paul, and that was Jesus Christ. 
As we said, that we Christians go through these resources uh, not because they're a bunch of principles. We don't look to the principles, we look to the person. And when we look to the person, we understand that God walks with us through these trials, these hardships, but he walks with us and by his power to, to develop this thing we call resilience. Guys, it can be learned. I'm just I'm trying to learn it. I'm having to learn it in this season of life, as we all are together. But it can be learned if we work through those principles and those resources we see from Paul. But if we look to the model of Jesus Christ, as I finished this morning, you know, this, this, I was trying to think, who's, who's, who's someone that's uh, inspirational? Who's been a resilient person that, that I've found being quite inspirational and resilient? And uh, the one that came to mind for me was close to my heart because she loved to surf. And um, it was none other that, than that, that young girl called Bethany Hamilton. Have you heard of her? Well, she had her arm chomp, chomped off by a shark, which I thought is so applicable for Sydney siders in this current season that we're in. <laughs> uh, but she had her arm bitten off by a shark, and, um, and in many ways people thought that she would never return to the water. And as I was going through the list of all the various achievements, I was only thinking of her because on ESPN the other day watching the surfing live, there was Bethany Hamilton in the middle of a professional surfing tournament. And I thought she was just in on some sort of wild card and they were being sympathetic to her and it was a nice inspirational story. No, she was really competing and she was really winning. 2009, she came second in, uh, in one of the Australian Billabong Pro Surf tournaments that she had. And so, uh, again, what I loved about Bethany, Bethany Hamilton was not just the story of the resilience of bouncing back, talk about moving back to where she was. She bounced back, to all, right, back all right, but it's my favourite quote from her. She said, please, please, don't, don't look at me as an inspiration. I'm just here to point people towards heaven. Uh, your treasures in jars of clay. So that it might be shown that this all-surpassing power for resilience might be known that it is coming from God and not from us. Let's pray.